You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. Oh, I really enjoyed this podcast. It's with Zainab Tone, who is a professor of the practice in the Operations Management Group at MIT Sloan School of Management. She's also president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, where she works with companies to improve their operations in a way that satisfies employees customers and investors alike. Uh, Before joining MIT, Sloan Tone spent seven years on the faculty at Harvard Business School, and she's the author of The Good Jobs Strategy, which has got a new book, and it's called The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. Enjoy the pub. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Zainab Tone, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for helping me, Kelly. As I was reading your book, I was remembering my conversation with Gary Bowles, who writes about the future of workplaces. And he wrote two things that I thought were interesting. He says, robots and software don't take jobs. Humans give them away. Technology simply automates tasks. It's a human's decision if a job evaporates. And we can make different decisions, end quote. And then one other quote he said was, human work is just three things, our human skills, to perform tasks, to solve problems, end quote. It strikes me that you are also trying to simplify the context of the problem that we've got writ large, and then the solution within this particular topic area. Is that anywhere near correct? Yeah, I mean, what a fantastic way to start. Um, I think what you said takes me to two different places, one smaller, one bigger. On the smaller scale, what I'm thinking about is designing the jobs for humans, yeah. And and the second one is about decision making, choices and agency to create a much better future. So so I'm happy to dig into both of those things if you'd like. Yeah, no, let's on, let's do it. On, on, on the you know, on the designing the jobs for humans, as I as I as I think about what you said, I remember visiting Mercadona, a Spanish supermarket chain yeah. in um 2009, and we went to this warehouse which was fully automated and i asked them why did you automate this warehouse and their response was we never want to ask a person to do what a machine can do mm-hmm. and i and, and then they went on to say how they want to design the jobs to be able to leverage the entire human being their heads their hearts and their hands mm-hmm. and 
that on the technology work design uh, area, that should be our mentality. But unfortunately, increasingly, um, especially in contexts where turnover, employee turnover is high, companies end up designing jobs for robots. Yeah. And use humans for them. I remember talking to a retail worker who said to me, we are throwaways who are a dime a dozen, just human robots. So so I think the first one is about designing the jobs really to leverage human abilities, things that machines can't do. And then the second one about choices, and this is where I have empathy for company leaders, um, is, you know, we have agency to create a much better future. Mm-hmm. But when you look at people, and, and we can do that at the society level, we can do this at so many different levels, but the, 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 the level that I deal with is companies, right? Organizations and, and leaders of these companies oftentimes are not in their positions for a long time. They're under tremendous performance pressure. And they're constantly making decisions under uncertainty with limited data. They have competition. So when they're, when they're in that world, what do they do? They look at what's easy. They look at what's safe. They look at what has been done before. They right. look at what their competitors are doing. And, and instead of thinking, how can we imagine a f- better future? It could be related to technology. It could be related to pay. It could be related to work design. It could be related to so many things. But instead of saying, how do we imagine a better future? They resort to what's safe. And, um, and, 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 and I wish that they could see the choice, the better choices that they can make. So to your second point, I just, I feel like, and this has come up in different aspects on the podcast, that we as human beings are victim to the metaphors we grew up with. Mm -hmm. And we don't recognize how powerful those metaphors are or those movies or, you know, all the sort of cultural tropes and and, and whether it is acting as as if indigenous people aren't here anymore. Mm-hmm. Or if it's acting as if um, uh, Thomas Edison did everything by himself, <laughs> you know, like or anyone did. Great man theory. Mm-hmm. Or if it's in this case, which is you don't have to pay people like you, you can pay them well, give them time, do all these things that I think there's a lot of people who run companies who would just say, well, that doesn't make any sense in part because they bought into a story that they've been told before. And there's not enough people like you telling them there can be a different story. Yes, because the story that they have been told for decades now is labor is just another cost. Market pay is the right pay. Lean and mean is what drives efficiency. Mm -hmm. Spreadsheets tell the truth. Mm -hmm. These are the stories that have been told to business leaders for decades. And what I have found in my work, both in my research and work at Good Jobs Institute is one, low pay costs companies a lot more than they think. Mm -hmm. First of all, low pay costs human beings their well-being a lot more than what we people who make enough money to make ends meet think Mm -hmm. um, in terms of their health, their physical health, their mental health, their cognitive functioning, and their ability to do a good job. But it also costs companies a lot more than company leaders think. Because when pay is low, turnover is high. We've never seen an organization yet 
that doesn't pay its employees well, but operates with low turnover. And and turnover is, you know, just direct cost of turnover are expensive, but they pale in comparison to all the other costs, lost sales, higher product costs, waste, low labor productivity. And even those are small compared to the competitive costs, because when you have high turnover, you end up creating an entire system that's vulnerable, an entire system that's uncompetitive and inhumane. So the cost of low pay are not well understood. And I think if we understood those better, we would create much better future and tell much better stories. Yeah. And our I, frame of reference yeah. will be different. Yeah, I agree. And 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 maybe we shouldn't have to, but I get it. Because in, in part it's also like, why do we think we're here? Why do we think we're we were put on the earth? And it was certainly not to do drudgery work uh, and struggle to simply, you know, feed and clean ourselves, let alone, you know, get decent health care. And I, I was just on the radio talking about a podcast that's going to uh, drop next week with uh, Hajun Chang, uh, an economist who wrote a book called Edible Economics, and he uses food as a way to get into a, a particular piece of economic theory. And one of the things he talks about is chili peppers. And when you go to a Szechuan restaurant and there's the number of chili peppers next to a dish to tell how hot it is. And he took a friend who didn't want any chilies, like zero chilies. And when the dish came, there were chilies in it. And the, he said to the waitress, is this a mistake? And he had the waitress like, no, it's just it's the re- the chilies are the relative hotness. There's always going to be in chilies. And then um, Hajun campaigns. You're uh, at Szechuan restaurant. Yeah, you're at Szechuan yeah. restaurant. <laughs> and he compares it to caregiving in this country, mm. which isn't counted. And that it's not part of the GDP, the home caregivers, the people taking care of mothers, you know, all, all that stuff. And if it were counted as part of the GDP, it would probably be 30, 40 percent of it. But it's not. And it's always there. And it's important to the dish. But because you don't count it, um, it's 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 a problem. And that, to me, was such a salient way of looking at what's fundamentally wrong about the sort of in military industrial complex that we have certainly in this country, and I know other countries as well, when you don't take into consideration the human element that doesn't fit, as you say, on a spreadsheet. Yes. I mean, what counts is not always counted, and what is counted doesn't always count. Yeah. <laughs> well, well said. Um, you say, quote, one of your goals is to show business leaders that the status quo is worse than they think. Um you think that's true? The status quo is 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 worse than they think. It's worse than they think. It's worse yeah. than they think financially, as I've explained. It's worse than they think competitively. Think about this. Let's let's assume two different companies, right? So, and I'll call it a good jobs company and a bad jobs company. Now, the bad and and these companies, let's assume, are producing the same products. They're selling them at the same prices, um, and they make the same amount of money. Now, the good jobs company does this by paying their employees well and keeping turnover low. The bad jobs company does this by paying people as low as possible and having high turnover. Now, if you look at these companies, what can we conclude about the good jobs company? It must be that they're a lot more productive. It must be that people are not only more productive, but they're coming up with ideas to improve, improve sales, reduce costs. So they are... This company is leveraging the full human potential. Now, competitively, where would you want to be? In the good jobs company or the bad jobs company? Right. right. For the long term, 
which of these companies is going to attract customers? If you're in a service business, do you want to be operating in a world where your employees don't make enough money to be able to focus on the job and serve the customer and making mistakes all the time? Or the good jobs company where you have inexperienced people who can really serve the company, customers, of course, the good jobs, right? Which one is in a better place to be able to adapt to changes? One of the things we know about business is things are changing all the time. What customers want change, uh, what technologies change, labor markets change, right? If you're in a tight labor market, where would you rather be? So, so the competitive aspects, the competitive um, benefits of the good job system are often less understood. And in fact, when I look at the companies in the last couple of years who have adopted the good job strategy, the reason that they did that was because of competitive reasons. They wanted to win with their customers. They wanted to be able to adapt to changes and they realized they can't do that without having a great team that's set up to succeed. And you mentioned Mercadona in the in the beginning, and I want to actually make sure we talk about that because this is a company that invests in training, uh, that their employees get their schedules uh, a month in advance, and they get consistent shifts. Uh, they have a hundred percent promotion from within, mm-hmm. uh, unheard of. Um, Three point four percent turnover. Yes. I mean, and 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 this is because they give agent, but well trained give agency. And then this idea of operating with Slack. I mean, all these things are all work and they can't, I, I guess what you also say in the book is you can't take, you can't cherry pick these things. They all have to kind of work together for this concept to thrive inside a company. Yes. I was shocked when I first visited Mercadona yeah. because my first seven, eight years of research, I was working with these companies that were operating, or I was studying rather, companies that were operating in a vicious cycle of high turnover, lots of operational problems. I'm an operations professor, so I didn't come at this through the you know jobs angle, but from the operational a- angle. And, and it was just a mediocre system. And then I go to Spain to study Mercadona, and they tell me their employee turnover is 3.4%. First, I didn't believe them. I thought sure. Spanish people have a different way of calculating turnover. <laughs> um, and but but it's not that they just pay their employees more. They did so many other things. And what was amazing, Kelly, was after Mercadona, I came back to the United States. I studied this convenience store chain, Quick Trip, based in mm-hmm. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And here was a very different company with very different customers. In their stores were smaller, so many differences, but they were getting to the outcome of creating good jobs, winning with their customers and being highly profitable exactly the same way. And I looked at Costco, Trader Joe's, and they were doing the same thing. So, so one part of the system is, of course, you invest in your people. The only way to, 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 to reduce turnover is to pay them decent wages so that they stay with you. Give them stable schedules. Like you mentioned at Mercadona, 85% of the employees are full-timers who receive their schedules one month in advance. They can plan their lives around it, mm-hmm. right? And, and career paths. I mean, Quick Trip also promotes 100% from within. You cannot start as a store manager. You have to, you, you have to start, you know, in, in, in different ways. But it wasn't just investment in people. 
anytime you make an investment in something, you want to have a high return on that investment. Yeah. Right? So they made a set of choices and the same choices, um, these two very different companies that really improve the productivity and contribution of their workers. One of those choices is operate with Slack, I call it. Yeah. Right? So, so they always have more than enough people in the stores. And you might ask, how is that profitable? Like, how is that possible? And I don't know if you've ever been to Costco or Trader mm-hmm. Joe's, but you'll see the same thing, right? Yep. You might not see so many different products, but you see a lot of employees. Lots of people. Lots of people. Why is that? Well, because they're so customer focused. They want to make sure all the products are in the right pl- location in the stores so customers can buy them. They want to make sure that when there are so many store cu- customers at the stores, the flow at the checkout is as efficient as possible so they can process as many customers as possible. Um, so that raises, that increases sales. They want to make sure that their employees have time to talk to customers and they have time to experiment different things and improve performance. Now, all of these things not only improve sales, but reduce costs. And that means that companies like Mercadona, Costco, Trader Joe's can pay their employees more because they contribute more and they're more productive. So operate with Slack is one of the four choices that I have identified when I studied these companies. And the others are cross-train, standardize and empower and um, focus and simplify. And the thing that's interesting about operating with Slack is, it, um, is this concept of, of, of creating time that is not simply tied to the duties you need to do in your job. And I'm married to a college professor. <clears throat> so I know how that operates in your, in your world. And it's, 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 it's seemingly well thought out that there's got to be time to do just the thinky work. And I work in a creative field where part of my job is to come up with new, new ideas, new things, which also means I have, I have to have time to walk around and daydream as part of my job. And that doesn't show up you know, in a cost-benefit ratio analysis, if I ask the accounting department to do that. However, the cost of not doing that is huge because it means that no one is thinking about what the next thing might be. And I think, you know, because you work in a in an education, and I'm not saying colleges have this all like totally figured out. I know they don't, but at least it gets talked about. And the same thing in here, working in an arts organization, it's like, okay, we have a general idea of why that person might have value, even if they're just walking around. You know, for most places, it's not even a thing to be considered. That's exactly right. And when you think about, so there are two costs. You either have too many people or too few people, or you give people either too little time or too much time. So in a typical environment, you say, what is the cost of having too many people? Or what is the cost of having more uh, workers than the the workload? That cost is very easy to identify. Very easy. It's like labor costs. Whatever number of hours we have, time the wage rate, that's the cost. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the cost of not having enough? Right. You will never know. You'll never know. It's the loss of customer goodwill mm-hmm. and lost sales. It is burnout that leads to employee turnover. I mean, how many people, nurses, right? There are plenty of nurses, but they don't want to be doing the nursing work in the environment that they're in because they're so burned out. They yeah. don't have enough time to take care of their residents, their, 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 their um, patients. And of course, they don't feel good about themselves when they don't have enough time to be able to do a good job. What is the other cost? Cost of mistakes. 
When you make mistakes, of course, in a context like hospital or, 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 or pharmacies, it could lead to serious health consequences. But in the context of even retail stores, it leads to lost sales. It leads to shrink. It leads to so many other things. But all of these costs and leaders of these units, managers, they have no time. If you're understaffed, they're constantly working the cash register. They're constantly doing shelving. They're constantly doing things that workers are supposed to do, and they have no time to lead their people. They don't know. They have no time to develop their people. Now, these costs are so difficult to quantify, and these costs are longer-term costs. So human brains, where do we go to? We go to short-term. That's easy to quantify. So we say, I'm going to have as few people as possible to get as much done as possible, and that's what drives efficiency. And as an operations professor, this drives me crazy (laughs) because in my world of operations, like... It's optimal to operate with Slack. That's the optimal strategy in any system with some variability. The optimal thing, whether it's a human or even if it's a machine, is to operate with Slack. But um, just because it's optimal, you know, doesn't mean that it's doesn't mean anyone's going to pay attention to it. Uh, one of my favorite interviews that we did uh, was with Lighty Klotz, who wrote the book Subtract. Oh, and yeah, and I did not check right. the citations, but I'm sure yes. you talk about this, which is this idea. That, and I think we're all guilty of it, that more means more. And that what we often don't do is simply say, well, what would happen if we subtracted from this? Yes. And that, and again, that's a nuanced thought, but it is something that I think is, is important because I, is, since interviewing Lighty, a lot of times I've looked at him and been like, you know, the problem with this thing is there's three too many steps. Yes. So let's eliminate. And, and in other contexts, we've talked about that as friction. You know, how do you reduce the friction? And usually it's a taking away, not an adding on to. Yes, absolutely. I love Lady Klaus's work. I'm so glad you had him on the podcast. And I remember when I started studying Mercadona and Quick Trip and Costco and Trader Joe's, one of the other things that I saw in common was how they offered their customers fewer products than their competitors did. Mm-hmm. They did not offer their customers promotions. Like there was, they, they did fewer things. And why was that? Because People upstream working in product design, in, in, in marketing, et cetera, they knew that if we simplify the work of the front lines, not only will they be more productive, but they can also serve the customer better. So when we now work with companies um, that want to create this entire system and they don't have it, one of the first things that we encourage them to do is look at where you can subtract. What are those things that don't add value to your customer? that you can take out? What are those things that so many different functions put on the front lines that make their work so tedious and so unproductive? Take those out. How can you subtract variability, right? Sometimes the problem is that there's inconsistency and variability in the work that we do. And all of this subtraction not only makes the work better and people have more pride in their jobs, but it enables pay investments as early as possible. Because when you reduce the workloads, now you can invest in higher pay. And 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 and, and that's a beautiful combination that we have seen that it allows the companies to get out of the vicious cycle that um, they operate in. All right, there's two companies I want us to talk about. <clears throat> uh, uh, the first is Starbucks. So let me start this by, I go almost every day. 
Uh, there is a Starbucks in our building, but I don't just go there. I go on the way to get my ice venti americano from home, and I stop at this other one in Chicago that's on my way. And then later I'll go for my second Starbucks down there. And I, it's a love-hate relationship. Love it because I go every day and I like their product, but also – I am just kind of, I'm my poor baristas seem frayed beyond frayed. There's always some new weird drink that they're trying to figure out. And it's, it's, and then suddenly like it'll be entirely turned over. And then I'll have to get to know all these other people, you know, for the years that have been here. The Starbucks at the corner of North and Wells, where Second City is, at times has been the busiest Starbucks in the United States of America. It was open 24 hours a day. They had to stop that. Uh, because it was just too much wear and tear is my understanding on, on the people. But I know when I was younger, I don't think this is so much true today, but certainly when I was younger, Starbucks was upheld as like, this is a great place to work. Everyone gets insurance. Not necessarily a true thing that is a great place to work. I don't want to name names and talk about specific companies. But one of the things that I will say is I teach a case about Starbucks. Yep. And this case that I teach is exactly about what you talked about. Okay. And it talks about when Starbucks first started how many drinks they had, and how long it will take to train a barista on those drinks. And then over time, they added more and more and more and more, and not only more drinks, more combinations, but also promotions like the unicorn frappuccino or this and that, that really disrupt the work of the baristas. Mm. So over time, the complexity of what they did, the baristas did increase tremendously. And when you have such high complexity, if you don't invest more in your workers, there is going to be a big gap between the amount of complexity that they need to deal with and their ability to cope with that complexity. So if Starbucks mm-hmm. has not increased the pay, improved you know, conditions for their employees um, and, and, and use other ways, technologies, other ways to simplify, we will have that gap. And that gap is going to produce a lot of problems for customers, long lines, wrong drinks, um, et cetera, a lot of turnover for baristas. No one likes to fail in front of the customer. Nobody likes to say, oh, Kelly, I'm sorry, you know, I made a mistake. Let me do that again. Or, you know, the, or you have to wait, you, you have waited like 10 minutes before you, you right. got here. Um, and high complexity also makes it very difficult to increase pay because now the work is more tedious. It's less productive. Right. So it's not a great combination. And um, I wish, I mean, Starbucks is a new leader now and it seems like he's, he's spending a lot of time at the stores. And I hope that he'll understand the work the baristas are doing and find ways to improve both the work and the worker experience. Well, I'll, I'll note this, that it is not uncommon for me to order ahead at the wrong store. And there is never in the last like year that I've been doing this, that they've ever, they're always like, I'll make your drink. It's fine. You already paid for it. And they'll give it to me. They don't, they like without doubt. So whoever decided that thousand percent, you have my money. I know it's not the right store. That's probably an accounting you know hassle, but <laughs> the right move. Uh, but then when you talk about the bandwidth tax uh, in, in the book, I think that's also what you're talking about when they've had certain kinds of cultural problems and, and other things. It's like you just you know, once someone is tired and things are complex and, the, and they feel like they're failing, they make all sorts of bad decisions that maybe they wouldn't make if they just had more space, more time, more training, all the things that we're talking about and things were less complex. So it's like you don't even know the trouble you might get in. 
if you if you don't take care of your workers in the way you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that bandwidth tax, I mean, we even pay it in our homes, right? When 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 yeah. when, when things are so difficult, uh, we may not even treat our own children, right? And if if parents could I don't know what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> yes, I do. Condition, imagine yes. what it would be when you're dealing with your customers. So yeah. that bandwidth tax is so real and simplification would benefit so many at different levels. Yep. So Home Depot got a new CEO, Bob Nardelli, who came from GE, classic sort of Jack Welch. Everyone said was, everyone's studying Jack Welch. Jack Welch was the way to go in terms of what he did. And then Home Depot, like, like they were profitable, right? They got more profitable under Nardelli for the first couple of years. Yeah. Can I tell you a very quick story about Jack Welch? Because yeah, I, I, I was a doctoral student at Harvard Business School. Uh, I joined in 1997, a mm-hmm. uh, long time ago. And at that time, you know, we had cases about Jack Welch. Everybody in the business world revered Jack Welch. Yep. My advisor, Kent Bowen, was not one of them. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he said, you know, someday somebody is going to write a book about how much their principles destroyed value. Wow. And you know, at the time, as it's 27, 30, you know, the year doctoral student, I'm like, I, I don't know what Kent you're talking about. And now I understand. Um, so, so, uh, Bob Nardelli, a Jack Walsh protege comes to Home Depot late 99 or early 2000. Um, and Home Depot at this time had been a very successful company. They have, you know, they were the youngest company to reach 40, 50 billion dollars in sales and they were profitable, but they had a problem. Their problem was that they, there was a lot of inconsistency across their stores. They really needed operational discipline. Mm-hmm. And, and and when Jack Wall, uh, when Bob Nardelli went there, he could have implemented great operational discipline and and created excellence in operations. But instead, what he did was apply some of those principles about well, I need to make my numbers, right? I'll do whatever it takes to make my numbers. I'm going to cut labor. I'm going to cut inventory. I'm going to cut here, cut there. The result was in the short term, yes. Their margins increased. Um, things were getting better. But you know what? Again, we, we talked about um, not everything that counts is counted and not everything that's counted that counts. Customer service restarted mm-hmm. declining. And before there were experienced people who were serving the customers. Now those were replaced by part-timers. Before people had time to serve the customer, now the number of people per store dropped tremendously um, from you know when he took over to uh, where it was when, when he left. So of course, all of these things made Home Depot a much weaker company. And when the next CEO came in, Frank Blake, he also came from GE just to give him credit. But he came in and he said, you know what? We're going to go back to the inverted pyramid where customers are at the top. Mm-hmm. Our associates, employees are right below the customers. And right. while we executives are at the bottom and, and, and try to change the culture again, of course, it takes much longer um, to, to fix a broken culture. But it's got, it feels like it's gotten better. It has gotten, um, under his tenure, it has gotten better. I have not followed yeah. them d- during the last couple of years. Um, but, but yeah. It's hard. I mean, I know this. I am not handy. So when I go into a place like Home Depot, I need the help. And if someone is not there, it is like 
50, 60, 70%, I think more frustrating for me than maybe for other people. And I leave because I just, I can't, you know, it, it's, I, I'm, you, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the, probably the behavioral science around this, when you don't feel a sense of competency, you really struggle. And I think when you go into these sort of retail organizations, the thing, or into like a high a level retail chain, whether it's like Four Seasons or Ritz, you know, those is they just make everyone feel competent. They make it, they make it easy for all of you. And you're just like, Oh my God, this is like the best thing in the world because it's like, I, you know, it's worth it. It's worth the money. Yeah. And all the companies, Kelly, that adopted the good job system, their, ref, their, their starting point was why do our customers come to us? Right? Yeah. Why is it that they come to us and how do we become customer centered? And once they chose to be customer centered, then it was obvious for them to be employee-centered, right? In terms of Home Depot, why do our customers come to us? They come to us because they need help. They need to be competent in their home project. And, and, and that's why they come to us versus buying something online, right? This is why they come to our stores. If Once you understand that, can you ever deliver to them if you have an inexperienced workforce? Can you ever deliver mm. to them if you can't execute well? Of course not. And that's why you would adopt a good job strategy, invest in people and set them up for success because that's how you win with your customers. I mean, deep inside, the sad thing is, I think deep inside, um, when I explain the good job strategy, the many leaders, of course, they know that winning requires a great team that's set up to succeed. Right. But they always go back to that reference that we started the conversation with. Mm-hmm. I can't afford to do that in my setting. Right, right. I'm gonna, those yeah. are the stories that they've been told. Well, shareholder capitalism and the, and the idea of also just buying into that and 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 not into the sort of larger idea of these companies that we admire. I mean, one of the one of the joys of working at a place like Second City, and we are far from perfect. But one of the things that I would argue is perfect here is. Uh, the way we, the process for which we create shows, the process by which we train the talent for those shows, and the and the success speaks for itself in terms of just, you know, superstar after superstar comes out of a an organization whose ethic is to make other people look good. Huh. Your job, you are trained to save the person across from you, and if you just do that, if everyone does that, we are all going to thrive. And so that gives you Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Gilda Radner, Catherine O'Hara, and all those people. And it's like, it maybe seems counterintuitive, but I don't think it is if you know what makes human beings tick. Of course. I always wondered this about Jon Stewart because it seemed like so many people came out of his, um, and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, the, the, well, a bunch of them came here first. They were there first. Okay. So you're, they were there first and then, yeah. when, but, but of course, you know, when, when you invest in people, yeah. when you help develop them, and they do the same for others because they, they do learn. the same for others. Mm-hmm. Like they, reciprocity is so human. Um, it makes, I mean, it seems like Pollyanna-ish, but it does make the world a much better place. No, absolutely. And this is actually what I wanted to talk to you. We're going to ask you for a yes and story in a minute, but the ethics uh, is something I'm very interested in. And the, one of the things that's at the heart of the pr- both the problem and the solution mm-hmm. that we're talking about here is trust. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the problem is a lack of trust and the solution is give people some trust. Yes. And lack of trust operates in so many different ways. And yeah. I will start with business leaders. 
um, not trusting the frontline workers. Right. And not because they don't like them, but when frontline workers, when they don't make enough money and they have all sorts of problems, health problems, cognitive um, functioning problems, they can't focus on the job, they have attendance problems, they can't do a good job. And, and it's because of the system that they operate in, the low pay, the, 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 the vicious cycle of poverty. So executives look at that and say, huh, they can't even do the simplest job. I don't trust them. I don't mm-hmm. trust them, you know, and, 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 and companies that operate with high employee turnover, they don't hire the right people. They don't train them well. And of course, again, executives say, we can't trust them to make decisions. And when they can't trust frontline workers, then their tendency is to centralize as much as possible, right? So let them do robotic tasks. Let's not ask them to use their judgment and we'll make the decisions for them and they'll just execute. But then many of those decisions end up being bad decisions. And then the frontline workers don't trust them. So there's a mistrust, misloop, um, loop that, that, that happens. And it's a sad thing for our society. And it shows up in so many other ways too. When you shop, you know, we spend a lot of time in restaurants, in retail stores, like millions of, hundreds of millions of people shop at these places every single day. And when it's an environment where people don't trust one another, you feel that as customers yeah. and customers treat workers poorly, workers treat customers poorly. Everything ends up worse for yeah. everyone. And, and, and what we know too, in other domains, high performing teams absolutely operate with, with trust, whether you're an orchestra or a soccer team or a theatrical troupe, it is, it is incumbent upon whether it's the director or the conductor or whatever, not to bark out orders. And I know that's, that's an old school way of doing it, but, but the, what we've learned over time is that no, no, like this, the, the top performing teams are there with support and trust and then providing these incredible individuals with a sense of agency. And we use the term ensemble as opposed to team because team implies a certain kind of competitiveness. And an ensemble is rooted in these various rules, which are all very pro-social and, and, and about getting the best out of, out of everyone. And we have an ethic in, in our field saying that all of us are better than one of us. Yeah, and, and I think that that's just true of the best teams. That's beautiful. And that is true of the best teams. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yes, I do have one for you. I hope it's it's an okay one. Um, so when my first book, The Good Job Strategy, came out, I started getting requests from company leaders, uh, from like one of the world's largest companies to dog walking businesses. And my answer, and, and the question was, could you help us? Could you help us adopt this good job strategy? And my answer was, no, I have four kids. I have a job. I'm not a consultant. Um, and then one day, um, Roger Martin, who I describe him as the Peter Drucker of our times, yes. he was visiting. I, I, we, we were having dinner together and I told him, I said, you have no idea who I just talked to. And I talk, told him about this conversation I had with this retail CEO. And Roger said, what did he ask you? I said, he asked me if I would help them. And he said, what did you say? I said, I said, no. And he goes, that's probably the worst answer you could have given him. Um, but you see, I did not have the confidence in my abilities to be able to help these companies. And I said to Roger, okay, um, I'll do this if you help me. 
So I turn it from a no to yes and if it's yeah. we do it together because you know how to do this. And and he said fine. So he he is the chairman of our that's how the nonprofit Good Jobs uh, Institute started. He's the chairman, I'm the president, and I'm so grateful to have him as a coach, as a mentor, as an advisor, um, as someone who is helping us all the time as we work with companies. I love that. The book is called The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. Zainab Tone, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, so fun to talk with you, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Getting the Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive